Um, Christmas is sadly well and truly behind us now. It's always the saddest week of the year for me when the tree comes down. Uh, I always start the year off a bit sad. Isn't that awful? Um, but anyway, if you're anything like me, New Year, you always do a bit of reflection on the year that's gone past. And maybe you're thinking about the, the year that's coming up or wondering what's going to happen or what you want to do or what you want to achieve. Maybe you're thinking, New Year, New Me. I don't know if anyone's thinking that. Um, probably like me, it's more like New Year, probably the same old me. Um, but maybe you made some New Year's resolutions. Um, I don't know if you did. Um, some people do, lots of people do, looking for that clean slate. Going to get to the gym, going to get those abs back. Um, it's been about 20 years since I had abs, but there you go. Um, um, maybe you're doing whatever it is you want to do. Um, but for most people, uh, New Year's resolutions don't last that long. I did. I read one survey on, online this week, and it said that 43% of people, I don't know who they, 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 they surveyed 1,000 people, so it's a pretty small pool, but 43% of them said that they gave up on the resolutions within the first month. That's doing pretty well. Um, a month is pretty good. But anyway, according to the Fitness Industry Association, 12% of all gym members memberships begin in January. And after just 24 weeks, most people have stopped going to the gym or have canceled the membership altogether. Uh, maybe you know what that's like. Or maybe you, you want to be a good Christian. You started like a, a one of those reading the Bible throughout the year plans. And you give up before you get to Leviticus. Or when you get to Leviticus, you're like, I'm done with this. But why is it, I wonder, that we're so bad at resolutions? Why are we so bad at self-improvement? Well, to find the answer to that question, we need to go back to the beginning, to the very beginning. You see, uh, humanity, human beings, were, were created in the image of God. We were made to re by God to reflect his image and, and, and to reflect his glory in the world. In fact, God, when he made the world, said that at every stage that it was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't declared to be very good until there was something in creation to reflect his glory. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that it was only after the creation of, of, of humanity that God declared creation to be very good. God made Adam in his image, which would mean that as descendants of Adam, we are made in his image too. But the sin of Adam, rejecting God and, and rebellion towards God, has been pa passed down to all of us. So, so now we do bear the image of God, but it's a broken image of God. We've rejected God, and so we can't truly reflect His glory in the world. And so because of this, most of us can't even do what we want to do, never mind do what we ought to do. The Apostle Paul knew what this feels like. In Romans 7, verse 15, he says, I, I, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think if there's one verse that I resonate with in the Bible, it's that one. I do, I, 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 I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I, I want to do. Do you ever feel like that? Probably you do. Doing the things you don't want to do, not doing the things you know you should. And I'm not just talking about New Year's resolutions. I'm, I'm talking about when we find ourselves in those repeated cycles of the same old sin or the same old failed attempts to change for the better. It's impossible for us to change ourselves for the better. Maybe we'll have good periods of, of self-improvement and we put some practice into place. We, we, uh, we go to bed at a, a decent time and make sure we get our eight hours sleep or we have, we, we have regular exercise or we eat healthy or whatever it is. But, but at a heart level, we are unable to really and truly change ourselves. Now, it struck me as I was thinking about this week um, that we live in a time of huge contradiction. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Because on one hand, 
uh, and you've heard me talking about this before, on one hand, we're, we're told to be true to ourselves, but on the other hand, we're told that we have to conform. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, on one hand, the message of, of our culture is that you should be who you are, and, and that's enough. In fact, that's the best you can be. Not only that, you should, you should be who or whatever you want to be. You get to decide who or what you want to be, anything at all. What, to, what you wear, what you eat, where you work, who you sleep with, whether you keep your baby or not, what gender, if any, you want to be. Soon it'll be choosing the gender of your baby or when you want to die. There has never been a time when there has been more choices in more areas of life than the time we live in now. And it's so ingrained and enmeshed into the social ideas that, that we just accept this message, don't we? Be yourself, follow your heart. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. But on the other hand, we are continually told that we must conform to a certain image. Now, not everyone is told to conform to the same image, but, but the command or expectation to conform is, is sometimes explicit, but most of the time it's implied and subtle. So maybe it's the size and body type of that TikTok influencer, or it's the political message that your friends or, or the, the, the websites that you read tell you to believe. But all of us are being told to conform while at the same time being told to be individual. Do you see the contradiction? Do you see how this would lead us to being fatigued? How it will lead you to just running in circles? I mean, if, if it's okay to be whatever you want to be, then why is there so much striving? If it's okay to just, you're okay just as you are, then why is there so much trying and hard work? Why is there so much discontentment and despair? Some stats here for you. In Northern Ireland, in the last year alone, there was 13.6 million spent by the health service on prescribed antidepressants. 70 million in the last five years. Almost 300,000 people were prescribed antidepressants last year, including more than 500 children under 16. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take antidepressants, not at all. We're thankful for medicines that help, but it shows that something isn't quite right. The latest available figures shows that there were 16.5 suicides per 100,000 people in Northern Ireland, which, by the way, is the, the largest percentage by far across the UK. And you have to wonder, if we're all meant to just be okay with who we are, like I saw lots of posts like on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day around that time, like, you don't have to change, just go into the new year as you are, you're good enough already. Well, if that's true, then, then why do these stats exist? And this striving to be different, but yet being told we should be ourselves, it affects us all. Because we're all subtly led into feelings of discontentment, being embarrassed about how much money we have or don't have, being, being embarrassed about our bodies or, or feeling pressure in fashion or social status or, or any number of things, your education. And the church is not immune. In fact, I think the church can, has teaching that can help us understand why this is the case. You see, see the greatest trick of Satan in our culture is to convince us to keep our eyes off Jesus and keep us striving for peace and satisfaction and contentment in other things. So we know that we have Jesus, but yet we're tempted to, to still look for satisfaction in all these other things. 
And if you don't believe me or you, don't, or you think I'm being overly dramatic, then, then listen to what God says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, uh, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And most of the time, for us as Christians, this, this battle against these powers and, and authorities is so subtle. And it's as simple as keep your eyes off Jesus and on the world around us. We're offered the apparent freedom of being ourselves or going after those travel plans or, or that job or that image, whatever it may be. We are, are, are kept enslaved to the pursuit of contentment through temporary things while at the same time having us convinced that this is all our own choice. And maybe you ended last year like this. And you, you feel like you're starting this year in the same way, endlessly pursuing fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, never feeling quite content and not knowing why. We think that things will finally be better when we get there, whatever there is for you. But whenever we get there, we realize that it's not enough and there is a new there. Well, if only I could get there, then I'll be content. And then you get there and you realize, well, if, now that I'm here, if only I could get there. And so it goes on and on, striving and striving to find contentment in things that will not content us. Now, I'm not usually in favor of New Year's resolution sermons. But before we get back into Luke's gospel next Sunday, I wanted to refocus our attention. I felt like that's what I needed in my own life. And I want God's word to lead us into this new year, uh, not aimlessly drifting, not conflicted about one minute trying to be ourselves and the next conforming to whatever rings true, whatever image is true that particular moment. I believe the Lord has a better way, a more permanent way, a more steady way, a more, a more secure way, a way of direction, a way of joy, a way of, of peace, a way that doesn't move, a way to live as Ephesians 4.14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Uh, last summer, when we had our church day out on the beach, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of what are called by-the-wind jellyfish blown, uh, washed up on the beach. Remember this? I, I didn't know what they were. I had to look them up. They're called by-the-wind jellyfish. And they have like a wee kind of seal on their back. And they literally just drift on the surface of the ocean, being tossed about by every wind. So how are we going to start this year? Are we going to drift? Are we going to be tossed around by every wind? Or are we going to have direction? Are we going to have security? Are we going to have steadiness? In the passage that, that Jess read for us from John chapter 3, we have an, an inter interesting scene from, from near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We find ourselves 2,000 years ago in the Judean countryside where Jesus', Jesus disciples are baptizing people who have, de, who have decided to follow him. This is part of the way Jesus was gathering a following. People were repenting, i.e. they were turning away from their old, old, old lives and, and deciding to follow Jesus and being baptized. But the disciples of Jesus weren't the only ones who were being baptized. John the Baptist was there. He's called John the Baptist because he baptized people. And he was preaching repenting, repentance and baptizing people too. 
Verses 23 and 24 tell us what was going on. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. By the way, if water needed to be plentiful to baptize, they probably weren't sprinkling them. That's just a wee side note. Um, and the people, <laughs> and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Spoiler alert: John gets put in prison later on. Um, so Jesus' band of disciples are baptizing people, and John is baptizing people. And because of this, there, there, there arises some kind of conflict, tension. We're not told the contents of this conflict, but we know from verse 25 that it is something to do with purification. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. But like most differences of opinion, it's the heart of the matter that's really the issue. Look at verse 26. And he came to John and said to him, Rabbi, and John's clearly a teacher, they call him Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Now what he's saying there is, John, we've seen you with Jesus. You baptized him and you said, behold the Lamb of God. And so they say, look, Jesus is baptizing and all are going to him. You see, the real issue seems not to do with purification, but with who Jesus is and, and who John the Baptist is in relation to Jesus. John is performing these baptisms. He's getting people to repent. And now all of a sudden, all these followers are leaving John and going to follow Jesus. So how does John respond? He starts losing followers on his Instagram. They start decreasing. But John says this. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, so he said, listen guys, remember when I said this? I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, was, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John gives us this picture of a wedding. He is, he pictures himself as the friend of the groom, Jesus. And the people who are repenting and going to Jesus are the, the bride. The bride is leaving the friend of the groom to go to her groom, the one to whom she's engaged. She's going to the side of the man she loves. She's going to where she belongs. Now, uh, 12 years ago, I got to be involved in the wedding of uh, one of my closest friends. I was his best man. And one of my jobs was to, to greet, he was at the front of the venue, and, and I got to uh, meet his bride at the door and bring her into the wedding. And when I saw her, she looked beautiful, and I was so happy, not because I got to be with her, but because I got to bring her into the wedding. And, and then I got to stand with him at the front as they vowed their lives together. And, and it made me so happy knowing that they were being together. This is the image that John is painting here. In the weeks and months before Jesus' public ministry began, John has been out there proclaiming that Jesus is coming. And, and he's saying, hey, you've got to ready your hearts. to Jesus is coming. You've got to get ready. You've got, to, you've got to repent. And now the Messiah, the Christ, has come. And so the people are rightly leaving John to go to be with him. John is like the best man who's standing there at the door saying, look, here is, your, here is your husband, here is your groom, go to him. But of course, John isn't angry or sad or upset. This is what it has all been about. In fact, he says that, that because Jesus has come and the people are leaving him and going to Jesus, his joy is complete. It is, it is his complete joy to present the bride to his friend. 
John says, I'm not the groom. I'm just a friend of the groom. It's not about me. It's all about him. In fact, in verse 30, we get to the crux of the passage. He says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist responds in a way that is foreign to most people's thinking in his day and certainly most people's thinking in our day. I must decrease and somebody else increase. And not only that, he is abounding in joy over himself getting smaller, as it were, and Jesus getting bigger. He's becoming less famous, but Jesus is getting more famous. You see, the the friend of the groom rejoices greatly. John's joy is now complete because Jesus is getting all the attention. Now imagine a wedding scene. Healy and I were at a wedding uh, on New Year's Eve. Now imagine you're at a wedding and the couple are getting their photos taken. And then I decide, well, I should probably be in there too. And so I like, this actually happened at the wedding. I ended up photobombing accidentally. The couple were getting a photo taken and I ended up going out the door and then they were like, why are you trying to photobomb our photos? And I, I didn't mean to be, I was just walking out. But imagine I tried to get myself in the wedding picture. I'm just a guest at a wedding. It's not my place. Imagine I tried to say, you should give some presents to me because I'm a guest at this wedding. What kind of egomaniac would have to do that? You see, what John realized And what we all need to realize is that the path to complete joy is to see that we are not the central character in the story. Jesus is. Let me say that again. You are not the central character of your story. Jesus is. If you're a Christian, you are not the main character. Now, uh, a wee while ago, there was maybe seen this video that was floating around on on, uh, TikTok and Instagram of the the guy who was an extra on... um, the, the reboot of Saved by the Bell. Have you seen this guy? And um, he is one of like a crowd of a hundred people. And it's in this scene where something's happening. But, but he, he's, he's trying to make himself the center of attention. He's supposed to be one face in the crowd. And he's there and he's doing all the facial expressions, trying to get in the middle of every shot. And these are the actions of a guy who doesn't realize that he's not the star of the show. And he ends up looking like a fool. And you know what? This just leads to disappointment. Because if you're not the star of your show, of the show, and you keep trying to be, then you'll always be disappointed. You'll always be striving to be more than you are. And most of our discontentment, lack of satisfaction, even unhappiness comes because we are living as though we are the main character. And so we, we try our hardest to be true to ourselves and, and live our own truth and follow our hearts or we try to improve ourselves by conforming to whatever image it is, and we end up being exhausted by trying and being let down as another year goes by and we're still doing what we don't want to do and still not doing what we know we ought to do. But when we make Jesus the central character, when we realize, as John the Baptist did in verse 31, that, that he is above all, then... And only then do we find joy and peace and belonging and satisfaction and fulfillment. And so I want to put it to you that there's no greater resolution that that we can make this year than I must decrease, Jesus must increase. Less of us and more of Jesus. A friend of mine has a wee boy who's nearly two 
tell me before Christmas that his prayer every night at the minute is, Lord Jesus, amen. <laughs> That's his prayer. But what a prayer. Why should we not make that the prayer of our hearts? Lord Jesus, amen. What if we went into 2024 with this as the desire of our hearts? Lord Jesus. What if we approached our friendships and marriages and parenting and, and work life with this prayer? More Jesus. What if we desired not to improve on our looks or our careers or our homes or our bodies, but, but desired more of Jesus? What if we started every day with the words of John the Baptist and simply prayed, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease? See, direction in this new year won't be found in trying to improve ourselves or, or, or being true to ourselves. Those things are just a path to getting lost. Those ways are just like the jellyfish drifting in the ocean. But real direction, the, the, the path to life and purpose and meaning and satisfaction and joy and peace and fulfillment can only be found when we decrease and Jesus increases. And there's two things about this that I want to point out. Firstly, it's a must. John says he must decrease or he must increase and I must decrease. See, the must of, of John 3 verse 30 is very important because this is God's must. It's the must of God's plan for the world, the plan of salvation for all who turn to Jesus. Earlier in this chapter, when, when Jesus is speaking to a, relig a religious teacher called Nicodemus, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about physically being lifted up on the cross by the means for everyone who believes in him to be saved. But he's also talking about being glorified, being exalted, being lifted up. He must. This is the plan of God. The Son of God, the bridegroom, will be exalted. He will be glorified. He will increase in the eyes of all people. One day, every person who has ever existed or will ever exist will, will bow the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a must. That will happen. This is what all of history is moving towards. It's inevitable. It's a must. And when we recognize this and, and submit to his exaltation, giving Jesus his proper place and see him for who he is, and we say, yes, Lord, of course you must increase and, and, and let me decrease, then we are joining in on God's plan for the world. Then we enter into salvation. Then we receive a future that is secure and a hope that is certain. Then we realize that it is he who improves us because we can't improve ourselves. Then we're conformed not to the image of the world, but conformed to his image, the image that we were created to bear in the first place. Then we don't follow our own truth, which can change from one day to the next, depending on how we're feeling. But we follow the truth. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. This is inevitable and so the things that ebb and flow in our lives the tragedies that come yes these things are real and tough and hard and and the joys in our lives and the celebrations are great and good but we have something steady something sure something that is 100 guaranteed so that's the first thing he must increase this is god's must but the second thing is that when jesus increases joy increases did you notice this in what john says in verses 29 and 30, he says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. The bridegroom has come to be, or the, the bride has come to be with the groom. 
So his joy is complete when that happens. You see, when, when Jesus becomes greater in the world and we become less in the world, our joy increases. When our goal is more of Jesus, then we receive more joy. Now, why is it? Well, I think a large part of this is because Jesus increasing is the only 100% guaranteed thing in life. Just saw as we talked about Nick and Sarah dated it, that, that nothing is guaranteed in life. But the only thing that is 100% uh, guaranteed is that Jesus will increase. The only thing that has zero chance of letting us down is that Jesus will be glorified. And when we put our hope or satisfaction in anything else, even good things like friendships and, and, and family, these things will let us down. In fact, there is a 100% chance that they will let us down. But when all our stock is in Jesus being exalted, when, when that's the desire of our heart, then we can't lose. It has been happening, it is happening, and it will forever happen. And so the thing that we're putting our hope in is a sure thing, and so of course our joy will increase. He is our savior, he is our provider, he is our shelter, he is our future, he is our hope. And contrary to human nature, this is why John is full of joy. Yes, John is getting less joy. But his joy is complete because his hope is in that Jesus would increase. And this is what Jesus desires for us too. See, Jesus being glorified and the joy of his people are intertwined. Last night, I had a dream. Uh, don't worry, it's not weird. I had a dream. Well, it is weird because it's impossible. I had a dream that Man United were playing the Champions League final. And that's impossible, right? But... If that were to happen, my joy would be so full. Not because I'm part of the team, but because they're celebrating, they're winning, right? This is so what the glorification of Jesus is like that. We are so entwined with him that when he is glorified, our joy increases. And so if you lack joy, if you're always finding your Christian life a little bit disappointing or lackluster, then, and then, then, then turn your attention to Jesus. Don't be thinking, I need to pray more. I need to do this. I need to be this. Focus on Jesus. That's a sure bet. Your joy will increase. If you want to find more joy this new year, then Jesus must increase and you must decrease. In other words, stop thinking about yourself so much. Think about Jesus more. Pray like we, Patrick, who's nearly two, more Jesus, amen. Don't wander aimlessly into another year without direction. Set your sights on Jesus. Don't go after things that will let you down. Go after Jesus. And as Jesus increases in our lives, our joy will increase. Now in September, we laid out our vision for the, the 23, 24 year, and actually 24, 25 year as well. And on the first Sunday of this year, it seems like a really good time to recap that vision, doesn't it? Um, and this vision for our church is like a practical outworking of the prayer, more Jesus. It's a desire to see Jesus increase in the world and for us to decrease. Not that our church would become known or not that the preacher would become known, but that Jesus would become known. And that's why our vision for this year is humbly depending on Jesus together to grow in him and boldly make him known. We have these little cards. I, I've had one up here since September. Um, if you haven't got one, just they, they are here. I think there's some at the back. We'll make them available for you. Um, put it on your fridge, put it on your notice board, put it in your wallet, whatever. 
humbly depending on Jesus together to grow in him and boldly make him known. See, through prayer, humbly depending on Jesus together. What is prayer but the pursuit of Jesus? That's what prayer is. Prayer is simply depending on Jesus for everything. It's realizing that without him, we can do nothing. This is the heart of the gospel message. It's the attitude that, that, that brings us from death to new life in him. And then it's the attitude by which we live our new lives in him. So we trust in Jesus to be saved, knowing that we can't do anything to save ourselves. And then we continue to trust in Jesus as we live as saved people, knowing that we cannot live in the way of Jesus without depending on him. Prayer is saying, more Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Prayer is pursuing intimacy with him. It's knowing him, not just getting answers to our questions or, or getting our requests met. Prayer is the act of saying, more Jesus. More Jesus in every aspect of in the area of our lives. More Jesus in the everyday. More Jesus when things are going well. More Jesus when tragedy comes. And the privilege of prayer is that we get to have intimacy with God. We get to approach him in the throne of heaven. That's, that's, the, that's what happens when we, we, we belong to him. In prayer, we, we vocalize the desire for more Jesus in our lives, more of, of his power at work in our lives and the lives of those around us. Prayer is the pursuit of more Jesus. It's the practice of saying, Lord, let me decrease and you increase. And when we meet together uh, every other Sunday night, that's what we do. That's essentially all it is. It's saying, Lord, you increase and let us decrease. So can I encourage you, as we start this new year, and maybe you're thinking about, I want to change a few things. Well, well, prioritize prayer in your own life. Make prayer the first response in every situation, both alone and together. Prioritize prayer together in your missional communities. And make a point of coming out to our, our prayer gatherings every other Sunday night. But not just through prayer, uh, humbly depending on Jesus, but also through discipleship, growing in him. You see, if prayer is desiring more Jesus in our lives, then discipleship is, is, is living, living out more Jesus in our lives. Discipleship is, is leaving everything else behind to learn from Jesus and live out the gospel. It's living in such a way that our priorities are not things like money or security or relationship. Rather, our priority is more of Jesus. Just like the disciples that left John the Baptist and, and turned to follow Jesus. This is what we must do. Not following any teacher or ideas or anything else. Simply following where Jesus leads. It's getting more into his word and, and listening to his voice. Did you notice this little section in verse 29 where, where John says, the friend of the bridegroom, that's him, who stands and hears him, that's Jesus, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's coming. See, John realizes that even though his whole work up to this point had been about pointing people to Jesus, the voice of Jesus is far superior to his own voice. This voice raises the dead. This voice is known by all the sheep and they recognize him and follow him. This voice woos and wins his bride and she knows her husband and goes to him. You see, discipleship is, is living out the desire for more Jesus by hearing his voice and knowing him. We are the bride who desires her husband. This is, this is what discipleship is. In following Jesus, it means just like in a marriage, we ignore, we forsake all others and go to him. 
Isn't that what marriage is? Forsaking all others, you say. And when we do so, our joy is made complete because we get to be with the one we love. And so we disciple one another in our missional community as we grow together in Jesus. And, and I would encourage you, I want to encourage you to seek out someone more mature in the faith in our church that, that you can be discipled by and say, can I please learn from you? And, and then in turn, seek out someone else that you can do the same for. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks and we want to help you do that. And so through prayer, humbly depending on Jesus, through discipleship growing in him, but also through evangelism and boldly making him known. See, if prayer is, is desiring more Jesus in our lives and discipleship is living out more Jesus in our lives, then evangelism is the desire for more Jesus in the lives of others. See how this works? It's all about more Jesus. Evangelism is speaking of the message of the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. It is, is, is the heart behind us decreasing and him increasing. Evangelism is, is simply seeking more Jesus in the world. In evangelism, we live out the example of, of John the Baptist who said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. Evangelism is, is pointing not to ourselves or our own examples or our own faith, but, but pointing to Jesus. It's saying, there is the groom. Go to him. Be with him. Leave everything and follow him. The only reason our church exists is, is so that that we can point people to Jesus. This is why we speak the gospel. This is why we share our joy in having found our groom. This is why it's part of our, our vision. And I've been so encouraged over the last few months to just hear more and more stories of people sharing Jesus at work or with their friends or whatever it may be. And, and wasn't it amazing that in, in December at our Carl's in the Pub night, well over 100 people came because we as a church have been sharing Jesus, and desire people to know him. Humbly depending on Jesus, prayer, the desire that Jesus would increase in our lives, growing in him, discipleship, living out more Jesus in our lives, boldly making him known, evangelism, sharing more Jesus with the world around us. Um, recently, I saw someone had posted on Twitter, or X as it's now called, um, I don't go on there anymore because it's cesspool of humanity but anyway um it's someone had posted this question what's the best thing about being a christian um and as you can imagine because it's a cesspool of humanity there were all kinds of responses uh, but one uh, one person had said uh, there will be justice uh, another said hope still another person said grace mercy and trust and all these things are good and true but as i scrolled on i saw the best answer one person just replied with you get Jesus. What's the best thing about being a Christian? You get Jesus. The single greatest thing about being a Christian is, is not all the benefits that come along with being a Christian. The, the single greatest thing about being a Christian isn't even that we're saved from God's wrath and we receive eternal life. The single greatest thing about being a Christian is that we get Jesus. What's the single... And it makes sense, doesn't it, right? What's the, if you ask me, what's the single greatest thing about being married? Is it the companionship? That's pretty good. Is it having a lifelong partner? Yeah, that's pretty good. Is it all these other things? That's pretty good. But the single greatest thing about being, me being married is that I get my wife, right? The single greatest thing about being a Christian is that we get Jesus. 
Christianity isn't a way of life. It's not a religion. It's not a philosophy. Christianity is the pursuit of a person. And until we realize this, until we focus our affections and desires and love on this person, we will find Christianity lackluster, boring, disappointing. thing about being a Christian is that we get Jesus. Jesus, the one who has always been, the one through whom and for whom and by by whom all creation was made. Without Jesus, we could never know the Father, for he is the image of the invisible God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who pursued us when we were lost. The one who left the glory of heaven and came to earth to make a way for us to be with him and have eternal life. The one who lived the perfect sinless life to fulfill the demands of the law. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who became homeless so that we can have a home in heaven. The one who was rejected by men so that we can be accepted by God. The one who died so that we can live. The one who was raised from the death raised from death to life so that we can be raised from death to life. The one who was ascended to his throne in heaven so that we can reign and rule with him forever. The one who did all of this so that his joy can become our joy and our joy can be complete. Why why would we go after anything else? So this year, as as we seek to depend on Jesus, to grow in Jesus and, and to boldly make Jesus known, Let's make our desires the same as John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. There is no better resolution to make. There is no other direction our church is going to go in. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his glory, his exaltation. Let's not just drift into this year without direction. Let's make Jesus our direction. Don't don't go after self-improvement, self-worth. Seek more of Jesus. Let's Resolve to pursue Jesus more. Don't resolve to be a better person. Delight in the better person. And then, the words, I'm going to finish with the words of wee Patrick, who's nearly two. More Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that it's good and true. Uh, Father, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us? Desire more Jesus. Lord, help us to fall in love with this person again. Father, maybe even for the first time, help us to see his beauty and his glory. Help, help us to see uh, how he has loved us and sacrificed himself for us, everything he has done for us, all of who he is. Lord, the, the prayer of our hearts, we want it to be, Jesus, you increase and let us decrease. Father, I pray for every single one of us our whole church family this year, that as we enter this year and as we move through this year, as we come to the end of this year, that we would just keep this one thing in mind, more Jesus. Lord, teach us how to live in a way that we decrease and that he increases. Help us to be like John the Baptist. Help us to continually point John so true that as he increases, our joy Thank you, Lord, that you have created us uh, not just to exist, but for joy. I pray, Lord, that today would be a day of beginning, start of the year, a day we begin to focus our affections, love, and our joy. Lord, where else can we find it? 
the, your table now, Lord Jesus. Follow your instructions for how to remember you. I pray that you would meet us again in a special way. That you would uh, fill up our joy knowing that you are in close remembrance. Knowing that you are being glorified. Come and meet with us, Lord Jesus. Restore weary and broken hearts this morning. We come and be nourished by you. Lord, if we are disillusioned or, or lack satisfaction with our Christian life, Lord, I pray that at this table that you would fill us again, nourish our souls. You are the bread and wine that fills up the home of God. Lord, we give you all the glory. More Jesus.